Uh, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44, if you would. So we've been walking through the Old Testament, and I don't know about you, but it's gotten a little dark. So we've been walking through the Old Testament, and we're seeing how Israel's kings have gotten more and more evil, more and more sinful, and we've had to give messages more of a, of a warning type of nature, like, hey, if you don't repent of your sins, this is what's going to happen to you. I think actually last week's message was uh, forearmed through being forewarned. So anyways, we saw Israel's downfall because of their choices to do evil, because of their choices to sin. And we saw that God disciplines those whom he loves. Amen? That God loves Israel, and so he has to discipline. If he chose not to discipline them, that would actually be a real lack of love. So he disciplined them and gets them into exile. Well, I'm excited to say that we are on to some more happier sermons. Amen? Some good news messages about when God disciplines us, even when we sin, that he doesn't just abandon us, that he loves us and restores us back to himself. So today's message is knowing God's restoring or restorative love. Actually, we're going to do spend uh, at least next week, maybe even the following week on this topic of what happens when God you know, disciplines us, but then he brings us back. And we're going to see the 70 years in exile uh, in Babylon come to an end and God continues to work and believe in his people and restores his people, restores the temple, restores the word and that sort of thing. So that's what we're going to be looking at, God's restorative love. I have a picture of a restoration. So uh, is anyone into restoring old cars? I know Mel likes old cars, right? Uh, and this is sometimes a picture of how we feel about our lives, right? Uh, sometimes it's like the picture on the right or the left, your left, okay? It's run down, it's tired, it's fatigued, it's falling apart, it's broken, it doesn't function, or maybe it's a picture of Caleb Moose's car. I don't know, uh, recently. <laughs> there it is. Uh, so anyways, it's just struggling, and this is how sometimes we're doing, right? We're just feeling broken. We're just feeling injured. We're feeling like nothing's going right. We're feeling like uh, the engine's not only not working, it's not even in the car, okay? And uh, whether it's our homes or our schools or our careers, sometimes it's just hard. Hardship has come. And sometimes this hardship comes at our own fault, right? It's our own sins that have brought on this brokenness. Sometimes it's just circumstances that are outside of our control. Sometimes it's other people's struggles that make us feel this way. But we're in a time of exile. We're in a time of a dark night of the soul, maybe, or in a desert time. And this is how life is. And it's really important to understand that when life feels like this, that God is still working. God's love is faithful. God's love is enduring. God is working in, in our lives to restore our faith, to restore our lives, to end us up looking like, is this a, uh, I'm not a car expert, but I think this is a Mustang. Am I, am I right? It's a Mustang, a Mach 1, I think, actually. 
Anyone? So we don't know for sure. But I think it's a Mach 1 Mustang. And the reason I know that, kind of, <laughs> no, is uh, my brother actually, in our garage growing up, restored a Mustang just like this. And I remember what it was like when we, when we got this piece of junk into our house. We were like, what are you doing? You know? And he's like, I'm going to restore it. We're like, okay, you know, you're a high school student. You have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, none of us believed him, but he had a vision. He had a plan. He was going to work the plan, and it ended up to be this incredibly beautiful Mach 1 Mustang that he sold for, you know, a, a lot of money. But this is what God does, knowing God as restorer. Do we know God as restorer, not just of Israel, but of his people, of us? And we are actually in the process of a huge restoration project. That even here in the Old Testament, the Israelites were not even fully aware of all that God was doing. Because it wasn't just bringing the exiles back to Jerusalem and restoring his people. He had a vision for a king of kings, Jesus, to come and his church to come. And ultimately for all of us, all the kingdom of heaven and earth to be restored at the second coming of Jesus. So we are in a process. We are in a restoration process. This is where God is headed. Amen? This is where God is headed. This is, though, sometimes how we can feel like, so it's important to know God as restorer. So we're going to take a couple weeks to think about this idea. How does God restore his people? Today we're going to talk about how God works behind the scenes. God works behind the scenes. And secondly, how God communicates hope to our hearts in the middle of the process. God communicates hope. And then next week, we're going to pick it up with God rebuilds his community. God rebuilds. So God works, God communicates, and God rebuilds. So we're in the middle of the exile. So the Israelites have gone just more and more evil, and so God punishes them. All right, and he sends them to Babylon. And what I want us to do is pick it up here in Isaiah chapter 44. Oh, glasses. Anybody got a pair of readers that they wouldn't mind uh, tossing, tossing my way? Um, otherwise, I may ask you to read. So, <laughs> But uh, Isaiah chapter 44 in verse 24. I'll just go like this until I get some glasses. <laughs> um, this is, uh, this is uh, a message about the exile, okay, that God is communicating to the people. Verse 24, it says, This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord, who has made all things, stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, in the towns of Judah they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please, he will say of Jerusalem, let it be built, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. 
This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So this is what's going on here. So this is a prophecy. Many, many years. Thank you, son. Many, many years, 150 years before Cyrus. Now, who's Cyrus, which is mentioned by name, 150 years before he was even born? So who is he? He is the king of Persia who will come and will destroy Babylon. So Babylon destroyed Israel, eventually Judah, took them into exile, okay? But Babylon is going to be dealt with as well, so... God is going to use Cyrus, king of Persia, to come and destroy Babylon, and then he will free the Israelites to go back to Israel. Does that make sense? So 150 years beforehand, God says to Cyrus, he's like, listen, I'm going to raise you up, and even though you don't acknowledge me, so Cyrus wasn't a Christian, he wasn't an Israelite, he wasn't a Yahweh fearer or follower, He didn't even know God, but God says, I'm going to work behind the scenes for the sake of my people to restore them. Does that make sense? So this is a prophecy. This is just one of of the many prophecies about what God is going to do behind the scenes to restore his people. In Jeremiah 25, we have another, another one. This is 605 B.C., so this is about... Uh, so, the, so the Israelites came back to Israel in about 535 B.C. or so, so about 70 years before. So 150 years before, we have a prophecy. It's about 70 years before in Jeremiah 25, we have a prophecy that Babylon would be punished. Um, also about the same time in Jeremiah 29, it says that the time the Israelites would spend in Babylon would be 70 years, and then they would come home. So God's discipline was not, though it says he was... Uh, provoked to anger. And if we think that God isn't provoked to anger by our sin, we don't know God, but see the previous number of sermons, okay? (laughs) Though his anger and his discipline was not in a fit of rage, uncontrolled. It was very measured. It was very careful. And he was working even behind the scenes to sing, this is going to be a beginning of it, this is an end of it, and then I will restore you back to Israel through Cyrus, okay? Does that make sense? Um, So let's look over in Ezra chapter 1. Ezra is a, uh, Ezra Nehemiah is right after 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And this is, in Ezra, this is where we start to see Cyrus, this prophecy then coming true, okay? 
Remember, King Cyrus, he didn't know anything about this. Okay, he wasn't a, a, a follower of God. In Ezra chapter 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and, is a, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with freewill offerings for the temple of the God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted, all kinds of livestock, goods, etc. Um, moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed them in the temple of his God, etc. Okay, so what we have here is God very carefully disciplining his people, but then also restoring them. And so God's heart, right, never was like, I'm done with you. I'm just moving on to a new people. It's like, no, okay, you need discipline because of your choices. But even in the midst of it, I'm going to work because I love you. My love endures forever. I'm faithful in my love towards you. And we're going to work this thing on out. You know, uh, um, there's a, a, a very famous artifact called the Cyrus Cylinder, okay? This was found in uh, March of 1879 in the ruins in the Babylon, where Babylon was, okay? So this is the cylinder found um, of Cyrus, okay? And I want to, it says, on the cylinder is an account detailing the conquest of Babylon in 539 B.C. So what, what's kind of cool, so can I get kind of geeky on you here? Um, so uh, what's cool about the Bible is that we have uh, artifacts through uh, archaeological digs that are continuously being found which verify that the Bible is not only true, but it's been translated and all this kind of thing through the centuries, through the millennia, extremely accurately. Amen? Okay, so it's reliable. And so this was found in 1879. So this happened in 539 B.C. So I'm not, you know, mathematician, but that's about 2,500 years 2300, 2400, some of that's a long time, okay, that this was found. And um, listen to what this says, okay? I announce that I will respect the traditions, customs, and religions of the nations of my empire and never let any of my governors and subordinates look down on or insult them while I am alive. From now on, I never let anyone oppress any others, and if it occurs, I will take his or her right back and penalize the oppressor. I will never let anyone take possession of movable and landed properties of the others by force or without compensation. While I'm alive, I prevent unpaid forced labor. Today, I announce that everyone is free to choose a religion. People are free to live in all regions and take up a job provided that they never violate others' rights. In other words, Cyrus, see the Babylonian... Uh, strategy was conquer kingdoms and bring them to Babylon to assimilate them. Cyrus, king of Persia, said, we're going to conquer Babylon and we're going to let everyone go back and practice their own religions. How cool is that? What do you, who's working behind here? 
This has been prophesied by Jeremiah and Isaiah hundreds of years before. God is working behind the scenes. Isn't that awesome? That's pretty cool. One thing we just got to know about God being, having a restoring love is that God works behind the scenes in our lives. And even think about that, behind the scenes. It's not behind God's scenes. God's outside of time. God is sovereign. God is omniscient. He, he, it's not like he's, we, we're in this linear time where our minds and our thought were, God is outside of that, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So there's no behind the scenes in God working. He's always working. It's just behind our scenes. Amen? I know in my own life, there's, as I was thinking about this, there's two times where God's restorative love has just come to life. And now that I'm getting older, uh, I mean, I'm, I know I look not hardly at old at all, but now that I actually am getting a little older, um, I, it's just all the more clear that God was working, even though it was very challenging times. In my family of origin, we all have a family of origin, and it, it, all of us have, have very complicated issues from our families of origin, okay? And if you say, well, my family was perfect, I don't have any family of origin issues, you're probably about eight years old, okay? <laughs> um, so God bless you. Just hang on to that as long as you can. Anyways, in our, my family of origin, there's a lot of issues, but one of the things that was most devastating was when I was a, 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 about 13 years old, my mom and dad came and announced that they were going to get a divorce. And I was the youngest of four kids, and I had this idea of my family that it was perfect, right? We were the perfect family, close to my mom and my dad. We had this amazing relationship. And all of a sudden, it's like, we're divorcing. And it was in a very bad, angry middle of a fight, all this kind of thing. And I remember just shrinking back up into myself and just... And I'm like, what's happening? Where, where did our, where'd the family go? Where'd the love go? This is horrible, right? And it was hard. And my parents ended up divorcing after 29 years of marriage. It was very, very challenging, much more for them than for me. But I, I was challenged as well. And for a long time, I was just bitter about that, right? Like, I blamed certain parents and their part and my part and blamed this and that and and it affected me, and I just kind of withdrew into myself, and I withdrew away from a lot of things, and it was dark. It was a dark night, a dark season of life. It was hard. It was challenging. But now that I look back on all that, I see that behind the scenes, God was doing so many things. He was doing so many things in me that was preparing me for a mission that he had for my life. And one of the things that we try to do in the ministry is we try to build strong marriages, and we have a married night out coming in the end of September, and we, we try to help people have strong marriages. In our ministry, uh, over the 20-some years, there's been hardly any divorces, which is inspiring, right? It's encouraging, but one of the things that, that God did was He had to put me through the ringer of a divorce experience in order to learn about foundations of family and marriage and that, and that sort of thing. Does that make sense? So God was working to produce good things. I remember another time when I was a disciple. I'd become a disciple, and when you first become a disciple, you just think like, 
Jesus is Lord. I was baptized into Christ. It's all just easy peasy, smooth sailing. I mean, God's just going to bless me, and I'm just going to be happy, and the stars have aligned, and it's just, it's all good, right? And it's funny how that starts to wear off because my own sinful nature starts to hit me, and uh, weaknesses of the church or other people start to hit you, right? And you start to feel the effect of that. And I remember there was a time when I just was struggling with personal sins, and I wasn't repenting, I wasn't, so I was not being honest, and I was, the, the deceit was getting deeper, and I was actually on staff at this point, and some things happened where I got fired from my ministry role, and I got kind of put out to pasture, so to speak, disciplined. I felt like I was being put out to pasture. Uh, they called it whatever they wanted to call it, you know, so it's all good, right? Um, but, I, but it was just rough. It was hard. It was a dark night of the soul. I was depressed. I didn't want to read my Bible. I didn't want to, the last thing I want to do, right, is read my Bible. That doesn't work anymore. You know, I, you just have all these kind of attitudes, right? Does that make sense? But behind the scenes, this was 1994. Behind, it was like the worst year of my life. I remember at the end of 1994, it was Thanksgiving time, and they're like, let's all talk about what we're thankful for. And I sat there like, I'm thankful for nothing. <laughs> you, you ever been in one of those spots? I'm just quiet in this dumb meeting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what I'm thankful for. I'll, thank, I'll give you a thankful. <laughs> okay, just in one of those spots in my, in my heart. But behind the scenes, guess what? There was another person in that very meeting. Christy. She had just become a disciple. And she was growing spiritually. And I was in this horrible dark spot. And she had become a Christian. And lo and behold, I submitted myself. And I took responsibility. You know what, Joel? Let's have a little talk with yourself. Some of the best talks are the ones with yourself. It's like, let's just remember, son. I don't know if I call myself son, but <laughs> bro. Okay, let's just remember whose choices it was that got you into this position. Mmm, a, a step of humility. Let's just remember that you're only reaping what you've sown. Mm, which is a promise from God, Galatians 6. Let's just remember, and my heart started to soften, let's just remember, you didn't get baptized for leadership, you got baptized to follow Jesus, because you love God, amen, and my heart was getting more and more soft, right? And guess what? God was restoring me. And all behind the scenes, there's so much good that was about to come my way, but if I didn't let myself get restored spiritually, it would have been even darker. Are you with me there? That's why Hebrews 12 says, those whom God loves, he's careful to discipline. Therefore, submit yourselves, humble yourselves to his discipline, for at the proper time, you will reap a harvest of righteousness and peace if you let yourself be trained by it. I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing but study it out in Hebrews chapter 12. See, the Israelites had to let themselves be disciplined so they would be trained by it. And they went on to produce and receive a harvest of righteousness and peace. What do we learn about God's restorative work? Number one, God is God, therefore trust Him. Guess what, guys? We're not God. You're not God. 
I'm not God. None of us are God. Let God be God. Let Him be control. Trust Him. Amen? The Word of God is true and reliable. Follow it. The Word of God is true and reliable. What God said through Isaiah to the Israelites, did it happen? Absolutely it happened. What God said through Jeremiah, did it happen? Absolutely it happened to a T. God even knew the guy's name before he was born. Cyrus. Okay? Therefore, what can we learn from that? The Word of God is true and reliable. Therefore, you can trust it. You can put all your eggs into this basket. Well, I don't know about my future. I don't know if, should I go to this college or that? Listen, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all this stuff will be added to you as well. I put all my eggs into that basket when I was a young person trying to make decisions, right? Well, I don't know, should I, should I pursue a disciple or a non-Christian as far as boyfriend, girlfriend, etc.? I'm just going to go as a disciple and put my, all my eggs in that basket because the word of God is true and reliable. Trust it. I don't know, should I be baptized? Should I make Jesus Lord? The world looks so good. I don't know, I see the church and sometimes it's kind of, I don't know, they're just kind of weird sometimes. But the world looks so cool and good and all together and they make lots of money and drive Mercedes, right? But that looks so good. But this, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, okay? Listen, decide. You're going to put all your eggs. You're going all, all your chips in. I'm going all in on obeying the Word of God. Especially we're in the process of restoration and we're not feeling it. That's when we are tested if we're going to trust it or not. So I really forgive this person? They hurt me. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. With the measure you use, it shall be measured to you. Should I really train my kids in the ways of the Lord or in the ways of modern wisdom and, and knowledge? Do it in the ways of the Lord. It will bless them. They will return to it. The word of God is true and reliable. Follow it. Thirdly, God is always at work in all things. God is always at work. Things can seem hard. Circumstances are hard. We got a disease. We got... Even, even our own sins and their consequences, God is at work even through them. Now that doesn't mean we, anyone condones sin, but we can also know that even through our struggles, even through our shortcomings, God is always at work. Even through terrible things, so believe Him. God is God, trust Him. The Word of God is true and reliable, follow it. God is always at work, so believe in. And lastly, stop fighting God's work. Join it. It's hard to kick against the goads. That's what, that's what they said to, Jesus said to Saul, who was later to Paul. He's like, it's hard to kick against the goads. Johnny Cash sings a song about, oh, it's hard to kick against the goads. It's good. It's inspiring. You should look it up. Uh, listen to it. It's hard. To, what does that mean? It means you're fighting the work of God. See, the work of God is trying to get you to repent, but you're like, I don't want to repent. I kind of like it. The Word of God is trying to get you to reprioritize your life. So you go, I don't know. I kind of like my other priorities. The Word of God is trying to get you to, God, the work of God is trying to get you to do all kinds of things. Seek Him with all your heart. And you're like, mm, I don't know. A little half-heartedness is fine with me. All right? 
Stop fighting God. The Israelites had to finally stop fighting God and let God be God and return to Him with all their heart. Let's look over in Jeremiah chapter 29, then we'll, we'll be, be close to done. In Jeremiah 29, secondly, God communicates hope to our hearts. I'm going to switch over to the New Living Translation. God communicates hope to our hearts. So we're in the middle of being restored. One thing that's super easy to do is to lose hope, right? To lose encouragement. We start to feel like, you know what, this is just the way it is, and it's just going to get worse. And we've lost the vision of what God is doing with our lives and with the lives of the people around us, and we're stuck in the process of restoration, we lose hope. So what did, what did God want to be communicated to the Israelites in the middle of their exile? Well, this is where the very famous Jeremiah 29 comes from. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. It says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. God knew exactly the beginning and the end of his discipline. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. I will bring you home again. I love that. Amen. I'm going to bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. The hardship will come to an end and the fortunes will be restored. Guys, whether it's a, a temporal hardship or an eternal one, it's going to come to an end. And all of us will go to heaven. For those of us who are in Christ, it's not going to be long for some of us. It's, a, you know, I mean, older, that's what I'm kind of thinking. Uh, uh, it, uh, but it's going to come to an end. Any of you ever run endurance events? Endurance runners? So it's been a while, as you can kind of tell. But at one point, I ran, my longest race was a half Ironman triathlon. And it was seven hours in 110 degree heat in the middle of Iowa, of all places. Yeah, I got an Iowegian over here. Okay. It was so humid. It was August. And it was like, you know, you, you swim for you know, a mile, 1.2 miles, and then you bike for a little leisurely 56 miles, and then you do a nice little half marathon at the end. So by the time the half marathon got about, it was so hot, there's no shade, and it was just nice, fresh, freshly black-topped. And so you literally felt the, the hell coming up from the ground. It's, just, it's what it felt like. Okay, no offense to Iowa. but that, uh, And uh, um, it got to a point at the end of the race, and I'm sorry if you've heard this before. It's just part of, you know, what you get when you get the same preacher for 13 years. Okay, um, you've heard, but it's just like, and literally by toward the end of the race, you would take two steps of running. Both my calves would cramp up. You would stop. You would stretch both both calves. Then you'd walk for a little while, try to get some water. A few steps of running, <laughs> stretch. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, okay? And there's people by this time, like, come on, you can do it. You know, and all the pros, all the Chrissy-type runners, you know, who are done hours before us common folk. Uh, 
usually they get done with these endurance races and they go off to their, you know, RVs or what you know, no, they go off to their whatever they're in and they're watching TV and you know, having a I, I probably shouldn't say having a beer uh, from the pulpit. But anyways, they're, they're enjoying themselves, and we're out there still struggling, right? But no one left this time. Why don't they know one? All the, all the professionals, they were still there. They were lined up along the roads. And they were like, come on. I know it's hard, but you can do it. You're almost there. It was, it was so encouraging and moving because we were in so much pain. But let me tell you something, the thing that kept me going was knowing that every step was one step closer to the blessed finish line. (laughs) And I was like, why am I doing this? And actually, I knew why I was doing it. I was doing it for my sons, who were babies, infant at the time. And actually, Christy was pregnant with Jordan. And I was hit, which was not a good move. So if your wife is pregnant with a third child, don't do a half Ironman triathlon at that time. Anyways, sorry for my insensitivity. Anyways, but I, I knew I was saying, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this for my kids because I want to be, someday I want to be able to recreate with them. I want to play basketball with them. I, want, I don't want to just get fat and old. Okay, I want to I wanna be, you know, active. Okay, so this is why I'm doing it. One more step. And the finish line came. But there was hope along the way. Here's it, guys. Sometimes maybe you're cramping up right now. And maybe you're like, I've, I've had enough. It's too hard. And why am I doing this anyway? Listen, the saints who have gone before us are along the sides of the road. And they're saying, come on, you can do it. Moses is there. And Elijah's there. And Jesus is there. And Elisha is there. And Isaiah is there. And maybe even Cyrus made it in. <laughs> and he's there and saying, just a little bit more. God is restoring you. Speak hope into that dark place. That's what Jeremiah does here. Amen? Are you with me? And I'd finished and collapsed. <laughs> but we're not going to finish and collapse. We're going to finish and celebrate. And we're going to be together. There will be no more pain and no more tears and no more sorrow and no more cramps. Okay? And there's not going to be the professionals and the common folk. We're going to all be one. We're going to all be together. Okay, I've milked that analogy uh, for all it's worth. Okay, I just want to read a story to you, and then the message will be yours, and we'll pray for communion. This is from uh, Courage to Begin Again by Ron Lee Davis. It was a bright Sunday morning in 18th century London, but Robert Robinson's mood was anything but sunny. All along the street, there were people hurrying to church, but in the midst of the crowd, Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years since he set foot in a church, years of wandering, disillusionment, and gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out within him leaving him dark and cold inside. Robinson heard the clip-clop, clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab approaching behind him. Turning, he lifted his hand to hail the driver. But then he saw that the cab was occupied by a young woman dressed in finery for the Lord's day. He waved the driver on. However, the woman in the carriage ordered the carriage to be stopped. Sir, I'd be happy to share this carriage with you, she said to Robinson. Are you going to church? Robinson was about to decline, 
But then he paused. Yes, he said at last, I'm going to church. He stepped in the carriage and sat down beside the young woman. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman who exchanged and the woman exchanged introductions. There was a flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. That's an interesting coincidence, she said, reaching into her purse. She withdrew a small book of inspirational verse, opened it to a ribbon bookmark, and handed the book to him. I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could it be? He took the book, nodding. Yes, I wrote these words years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in the words he was reading. They were words that would one day be set to music and became a great hymn of the faith, familiar to generations of Christians, which we actually just sung a few minutes ago. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for song, songs of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He could barely read the last few lines through the tears that brimmed in his eyes. I wrote these words, and I have lived these words. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. The woman suddenly understood. You also wrote, here's my heart, oh take and seal it. You can offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson. In that moment, he turned his heart back to God and walked with him the rest of his days. True story. How cool is that? Do you see God working behind the scenes? Of course, God working behind the scenes. And he heard God's communication in the dark moments of hope. Maybe we need to know that God's restoring us. God's restoring you. He's bringing you back. He's calling you home. Maybe you felt like that. Maybe you are feeling like that. Hear his voice today, amen? As we take communion, make some decisions. Make some decisions. You know, uh, um, let me catch up here. What do we do with restorative hope? We can dream again, and we can dedicate ourselves to Him. So what we see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll be studying next week, is we see a new dream and a new dedication of the people of God to God Himself. How about you? You know, as we take communion... Have you been prone to wander? Well, if you've been prone to wander, then welcome to the club. Amen. We've all wandered. We've all gone astray. But now it's time to make some decisions to return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray for communion. Father, uh, as much as we don't enjoy it, we do need your disciplinary love. We need to have consequences in our lives. Thank you for loving us enough to discipline us. But Father, thank you so much that even in the midst of hardship or trials or dark nights of the soul, that you speak encouraging words to us. You're working behind the scenes to restore us. 
and you speak hope into our hearts. Father, I pray that we can hear the hope today, spoken through Jeremiah, spoken through Isaiah, spoken through Jesus, that we can hear words of hope, that while it may be tough, the finish line is coming, and you're working and you're restoring, and we can redream, we can rededicate ourselves to you again. God, I pray that your spirit works as we have just a few moments of quiet, as we remember Jesus, as we think about his dark night of the soul, where he took all our sins on, and he took them into his body, and he paid the price so we could be restored. We could be set free, we could be cleansed, we could have hope, and that the empty grave communicates that you're not done with us yet, that, that we have a better future, that your kingdom will be fully restored one day. And we look forward to that and proclaim that in your name until that time. We love you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.